This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Franz Marty. He's a freelance journalist who's been in Afghanistan for the last four years. And most recently, he's gone in search of big time Afghan arms dealers. He's found it very tricky, found out that a lot of these so-called mysterious and secret arms bazaars that people talk about just don't exist. So he's going to be giving us an insight into how it really works in Afghanistan, how the Taliban have managed to take so much ammunition from the army that they don't even need to buy it anymore, how the weapons go back and forth across the border and a lot more. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. So you've been in Afghanistan recently, right? Tell us, what were you doing there? Yes, I've been in Afghanistan since about four and a half years as a freelance journalist. Um, Travelled a lot around the country. And in the later years, I also tried to uh, get information about black market arms dealing, which is kind of tricky because the, the arms dealers are very paranoid. Even if you compare it, for example, it's way easier to talk with a Taliban commander or even a Islamic State commander. If you try to talk to an arms dealer, it's very hard to get people to talk and most of the time it's only like the small fish um, that will at least say a little bit and uh, to find the merchandise is even worse uh, because usually even the people that agree to talk they uh, hardly if ever uh, show any weapons. Um, but I nonetheless managed to find some bits of information. So how did you manage to speak to the people that you're saying, you know, it's so hard to speak to the big arms dealers in Afghanistan? I tried to be uh, other contacts, people that know uh, arms dealers to set up a meeting. Then usually people tell you they can help you and they can arrange something. Most of the time it then just like... Uh, leads nowhere and you have to try with 10-15 different people until at one point a friend of mine, we are friends of his, um, managed to in one instance last December uh, a small scale uh, broker who brokers like weapon sales in Khogiani in Nangahar in the east of Afghanistan plus also from there not far away a place at the Afghan-Pakistani border where um, there are smuggling routes and they smuggle everything including weapons and there I could talk to uh, people that are involved in this trade. Right and why are the arms smugglers specifically so nervous to talk because Afghanistan in certain parts as we all know is kind of the wild west again at this point you know it's like the Taliban are there um, there's an ISIS faction there. So why is it the arms smugglers are so worried about speaking? You would think that, you know, they can kind of move freely, no? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I can't fully answer it. Um, they are very paranoid. They kind of feel if they tell you something, or especially if you sh- uh, if they show a journalist something, that uh, it could somehow mess up their business. Um, as you said, it's not really 
uh, a logic fear because most of the time these are remote areas where if they would show me some weapons, I mean, it's not like that, uh, that even if the Afghan police would like read my article or so, they wouldn't automatically immediately start an operation against these arm de arms dealers because yeah, they are like busy with fighting the Taliban and the Islamic State. But nonetheless, it's a kind of outsider. Um, they only they only want to show like weapons or what exactly they do to customers, but not to someone else, because they have this very paranoid fear that uh, you could somehow mess up their business. Um, but it's kind of vague what exactly they fear. Uh, so that's the main problem. Right. And so, so you went in search of these arms dealers. What did you find out? What I found out was that uh, from various sources, um, reports uh, that you see every now and then, that there are like physical weapons bazaar, like a place with shops that sell weapons. Various sources told me that doesn't exist. It is um, a network of people and most of them like small scale dealers. Uh, that arrange or broker these sales. So if you're an insurgent or if you're just uh, some villager that wants to have uh, a gun to defend your home, um, you ask around and then people know which man can like arrange this and then you go to someone and you can tell them, uh, I need like that many guns, uh, be it like Kalashnikovs or pistols or RPGs or whatever. And then they they usually don't have them, those brokers, they don't have them on stock. Then they take the order and they know other people where they can get the, the weapons from. And uh, then they arrange the actual deal in randomly changing spots. So uh, then they just meet wherever um and uh yeah one party brings the money the other brings the guns and it's most of the time at least as far as i could with the limited information that is around it is most of the time small scale dealing with two three weapons per deal and then people doing this several times there are reports also about like larger quantities of weapon changing hands in one transaction um, people talk about this, but it's hard. Usually you can only verify the small deals. The big ones, they might exist, but um, you can't be sure, especially as Afghans have a tendency to like exaggerate. And uh, so there it gets really murky. Right, and you met some of these arms dealers, right? Yeah, so one in Khogiani, I met one uh, really small scale um, broker. This is one of the men, um, he doesn't have weapons on stock, but people know that he's in the business. So if you need something, you can go to him and say, uh, place an order, what, what you like, what you need. Um, when I met him, uh, he explained what I told you before. Um, plus, I mean, he had like pistols, sometimes they have on hand. He had like two pistols on sale. Uh, but everything that is bigger um, would be, you would have to tell him what you want. And uh, then he would contact other people, um, some of them like the bigger fish that have depots that are the, that are usually then like in deep Taliban territory where you 
not really can go to to check it out. And again, they are paranoid. They wouldn't let you, even if there would be a possibility. Um, but this man told me that it is arranged in this system that you have no physical um, bazaars, but rather a network of people um, that arranges uh, such deals. Right. So it's like a, a decentralized word of mouth kind of network rather than one place. Exactly. Exactly. It is. Uh, and I mean, it's quite easy. It's not like. It's not like those people are on the ground or so. If you go somewhere and ask around a little bit, who can sell you a gun? Uh, it doesn't take you long until you find um, the right person. As maybe there are like better or worse brokers, but if you just want a gun, um, it's insanely easy uh, to get one. So uh, the place is awash in, in, in weapons and in ammunition, and they change hands all the time. And... Uh, it's, it's no big deal. So uh, Taliban, if they need something, they can buy there. If they don't have it from like things that they capture from government forces. Um, so resupply for any actor in Afghanistan with weapons is no problem at all. What kind of weapons are being sold on this, uh, this black market? Most of the time it is like uh, classic Soviet stuff. So, of course, the Kalashnikov is... Uh, kind of number one, um, then smaller quantities, uh, PECAR machine guns, um, RPGs. Um, there are also pistols are a lot, uh, Turkish models. It's always hard to say if they're original or not. Um, then you have where I was in Nangahar, in eastern Afghanistan, right at the border with Pakistan. You have also uh, a lot of Dara Adam Khail copies, this place, this famous place in uh, Pakistan, um, where they copy weapons or even like produce their own crude versions. There have also been some, as I talked to, to various sources that had some knowledge of the weapons trade. And some of them also told me that... Um, there are some American weapons, US-made weapons on the market, like M16, M4, um, 240s. Um, but compared to the Soviet stuff, less. And these US-made weapons, they almost certainly come from um, insurgents that captured them from Afghan government forces that are supplied by the US or that... Um, there are some stories that Afghan government officials, corrupt officials, even sell the weapons themselves that they get through the, the state supply lines. Um, with the Russian weapons, it's harder to say where exactly they came come from, because they are also like often they are quite old, and uh, there are stories floating around where they are coming from, but um, it's not really possible to. To, to verify uh, all these stories about origin. Right, and what do they claim? Where do they say they're coming from? It depends uh, where one is. For example, in uh, Nangarhar, uh, they say it comes all from the Pakistani side. Um, and I talked with a smug smuggler. There is, um, it's not only weapons, they smuggle everything over the border, everything that gives profit. Um, and there are these stories about these uh, infamous Weapons bazaar just um, on the Pakistani side in the tribal areas. 
the most well known is probably the Tira Bazaar um, in Haib, also what used to be Haiber Agency. This is just, it's, it's like literally just a valley on the other side of the border and the smugglers travel back and forth there. The problem there is a little bit, again, in Tira there might be some kind of physical weapon bazaar, but um, there's a lot of exaggeration about these kinds of places. So uh, how it exactly looks like there uh, is anyone's guess. Or then they say that it comes out of these Pakistani um, factories in Dara Adam Khel, where they like really crudely copy or um, produce their own weapons. If you go to the north in Tahor in Badakhshan, I have information from credible sources that there is some arms dealing across the Amudaria from Tajikistan into Afghanistan. Um, several sources also claim there it happens, um, amongst others, in exchange for uh, heroin or opium, um, that Afghans uh, trade narcotics against weapons. There, the story that swivels around is usually that it comes from Russians, but the problem is a little bit northern Afghanistan, everything that is Central Asia is kind of still Russia to them, despite since the 90s being independent republics, but the people there talk as if the Soviet Union would still be in place. Sure, so when they say Russia, they might actually mean what is now a completely independent country, but was once, you know, under Soviet control. No, so the, the thing is, it could well be like Tajik organized crime or corrupt Tajik officials that right. sell this. But for them, it's just like if someone is on the other side of the river, he's kind of Russian, despite, I mean, it's Tajiks, which are ethnically the same Tajiks that also live in northern Afghanistan. It's just they have been so long separated, and especially during Soviet times, the people got kind of severed, like really... Uh, for, for the Afghans, it's very often all that is in the north is just like uh, is controlled by Russia. Of course, Russia is still influenced, but it's mm. just um, one can't take the word for it. And speaking of the Soviet Union, this is also one that um, one story that is heard often that these weapons are still like the leftovers from all these weapons that got shipped into Afghanistan during the anti-Soviet resistance in the 1980s, where the United States and also other countries armed the Afghan resistance and where like millions of weapons entered the country. Um, a diplomatic source said from a country in the region that these weapons caches must be exhausted by now because, I mean, there's so much time uh, has passed since the 80s. Um, however, other sources said that some of the anti-Taliban factions in the aftermath uh, of the US-led intervention that they kind of secured a lot of weapons that should have been decommissioned at some point in UN decommissioned programs or from other organizations and uh, that they amassed these weapons in these like early years and are now selling them like bit by bit. Um, or that also uh, other possibilities that it comes from government stocks as I said, a few US-made weapons are on the on the market and they are almost certainly uh, from Afghan government forces, be it that they were captured by insurgents or that corrupt officials sell them. 
Um, and one final interesting story that I heard, but that, that I can't be sure about, is one former insurgent told me when insurgents have to move to farther away places for some reason, um, they usually sell most of their weapons so that they can like move without weapons, without attracting attention, and sell it from where as where they are and then when they are in the new new place with the money that they made they uh buy new weapons and that then weapons are turning around like this but all these stories um, one can try to follow up but because weapons are old and uh, you can't be sure where they're coming from and they hardly ever show them to you uh it's like anyone's guess um maybe all of the stories are too true maybe some but to which extent or what the main source is is um almost impossible to say yeah sure um and are these arms dealers selling to everybody you know is, is one arms dealer selling to the anti-taliban resistance selling to whoever like gangsters and also selling to the taliban or or is it all different um, it's a hard question. Uh, most, I, it is usually um, if you're not government linked, or as I myself, an outsider, there's any way not buying, just asking for information, uh, then they are like reluctant. But otherwise, if you put the cash on the table, they don't really care who you are. I mean, uh, if 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 you have the money and if you can buy the stuff. Uh, it's business. They are they are happy to do that. Um, there are as at least two men that I was told were like bigger arms dealers. Um, they reside like in really deep Taliban territory in Hogiani and Cherzat there in, in, in Nangahar. Um, and if you're so deep in Taliban territory, then there must be some arrangements with the insurgents because otherwise they couldn't operate. Um, but then it's more a practical thing because they can operate in insurgent-held areas uh, because they're like, it's, it's not that police would give them troubles or anything. They arrange them more themselves more with insurgents than with the government because there it's easier, but there's more practical reason rather than uh, that they w would choose to do this uh, because they side with the insurgency. Um, I was told, but also there it gets kind of tricky. I was told some Taliban commanders are directly involved in such weapons dealing um, and smuggling. Um, but in, in, in how far this exists or how many they are is hard to tell. Uh, from what from what I gathered, it seems to be that most are like really arms dealers. They might have an arrangement with the Taliban, but they're not insurgents themselves. And it is only like a minority where Taliban commanders are directly involved in the whole trading and uh, do this also on their own. Right. I mean, yeah, it would be quite hard, I guess, for um, the Taliban to be you know they've kind of ramped up a lot recently right and they've retaken a lot of ground that they previously lost i think it'd be very hard to them for them to keep doing that if they didn't have a direct source to the weapon smuggling also this is hard to tell for example um one thing that i heard regarding ammunition there it's even like more dodgy what happens um 
But ammunition sales, uh, the arms broker that I talked to, he said like prices for ammunition broke down and he asserted that the reason for this was in the past, Taliban and other insurgents, they used to buy a lot of ammo on, on the black market, but they don't do this anymore. And this arms broker told me the reason for it is that they are capturing so much uh, ammunition from Afghan government forces, they don't need to buy it anymore. So um, a, a considerable part of the, the arms that the Taliban have and the ammo comes also directly from um, captures on the battlefield. Um, it is not possible to say if this is like a majority or a minority or like uh, is it about half or, or how relevant it is, but it is certainly a considerable part um, that they have uh, through other means than, than the black market. But the black market dealing and weapon smuggling over the border um, is also considered part. But where the split is, is again, anyone's guess. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so he was basically saying the ammunition sales had gone down because the Taliban were able to capture so much ammunition from the Afghan army. Yes. Wow. That's, I think that's a real sorry indictment of the situation with the army, if that's true. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. No, but uh, I mean, this is also... They capture a lot. If you if you follow um, the situation in Afghanistan, there is like small police checkpoints get overrun almost or probably on a daily basis. And usually in these, sometimes the Taliban also uh, or Taliban sympathizer posts like pictures of the weapons that they that they got. So there is a considerable amount. Um, in all those overrun outposts, then it's a back and forth. Taliban overrun outposts to, uh, take all the booty with them. Um, the government like pushes them back again, uh, but the weapons are already gone. So uh, this this happens a lot, and is of course I mean uh, a horrible situation. Um, but there's nothing new. As this this happened since like years in Afghanistan, uh, at least the whole time that I was there. Um, in how far it really has this like direct influence on the ammunition market, I can't be sure, uh, but the Taliban capture a lot. Sure. Um, and how do you operate in these areas? You know, where you're going to is incredibly dangerous for even, you know, general Afghans, I would think, in certain cases. How do you manage to conduct yourself where you can actually end up meeting arms dealers and finding out all these sources and speaking to people? It is often not as dangerous as most people imagine. And the key is always personal connections. You always have to know someone who knows someone and uh, on, on a personal level can introduce you. For example, this place, Guruko, um, the smuggling place, it is just like 15 minutes drive away from the main border crossing uh, in Torham between Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan. So to Torham, you can drive easily. That's completely safe. So it's just like the last 15 minutes that you branch off and go in this uh, smugglers area where you have to go with people that know people on the ground. And then you arrange it beforehand. And if the the local smugglers then agree, um, then there are no, they are no danger to you because I mean, they don't lure you into a trap that doesn't happen. 
And usually it's easy because in Afghanistan, it's always everyone is related with everyone. So usually you always find like a brother of an arms smuggler that is a completely decent guy. Um, but through the family connections, uh, he can like arrange the meeting like this. Um, again, with the with smugglers was a little bit easier. The arms dealers themselves, I know people that know them. And then they say like, let's set it up and so on. But then for some weird reasons, the arms dealers are like, uh, we don't want to meet. Um, and uh, I really managed only like this one broker um, and other with uh, others were just like in, I'm indirectly involved. So for example, I talked with a local uprising commander who uh, is buying from such people um, directly. Um, then you have to go there. Uh, but yeah, again, the trick is personal, personal connections. If you have the right friends, then um, you can even go to like really dodgy and weird places and you're not in much danger. Yeah, I don't know if I'd fancy it, but uh, yeah, that makes sense. And the the broker you met, what kind of guy was he? You know, was this is this a guy that has kind of found a way to make money from being poor or whatever and, you know, took advantage of the war? Or or is this something that is a little bit more business-like? Is, is this, I don't know, like a long-running line of gun runners or what? Most of the time, it's kind of coincidental how they came to it. Um, as, for example, the smugglers is usually there. Um, if you live there, uh, it's like a barren place, so there is not much else agriculture or other job opportunities um and there's also nothing new i mean the people there they make a living from smuggling since like ages um so there is kind of if you're born there chances that you get into smuggling which then also includes smuggling weapons are quite high um but like really just because you if you are there uh this is one of the main options that you can do um, the broker that I talked to in the, the other nearby place was an um, older man, and uh, he said already his father uh, was in this business. Um, and with others, then it's just like uh, they they come to it by by chance that uh, for some reason they know the right people and. Uh, at first, there is an opportunity to to do some sales and uh, then they continue on but those the the few people that i met but it's also the same with like taliban or um islamic state guys most of them they are regular people they don't they are not much if at all different from just an afghan peasant they just do some other work but they are not uh they are not like more uh war profiteers or more aggressive in in their business pursuits they are yeah it's just a, a normal job as uh, as any other job it's just as if you know in afghanistan it's a normal job it's just from the outside it looks weird but uh no one raises eyebrow if you're an arms dealer in 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 certain parts of afghanistan so it's kind of just one of many jobs yeah i think people don't realize the situation in Afghanistan is very different because they have been at war for so long. Like you said, this stuff just becomes normal. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's uh, as I said, the few the few people involved in the arms dealing, but also, for example, insurgents that I met. Uh, if you sit across them, they're like any regular Afghan. It's not 
it's there, there's nothing special about them. Right. Um, and lastly, um, what kind of prices are these weapons going for? Did you get any um, idea of how expensive they are in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's it's. I wouldn't say expensive. It's rather cheap. Mm. Um, I mean, one of these Pakistani copy pistols you can have from at around. 7,000 Pakistani rupees, which is about $47. Um, I don't know if I would shoot the thing. I would be afraid <laughs> it explodes in your hand. Um, then better pistols start at like $100 to three, $400. Um, Kalashnikovs, there you have a wide range because then you have like copies uh, that different qualities and so on as its original Russians are um, more expensive than Pakistani or Chinese or Egyptian copies or whatever. Um, but we're talking about prices from around $400 to $1,150, depending on the quality. Um, Pekar, the heavy machine gun, starts at about $1,350 US dollars up to 3,300, 400 US dollars. That's really cheap for a heavy machine gun. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, <laughs> there are a lot, there are a lot around, so prices yeah. go down. Yeah. Uh, RPG is like 340 to 680 US dollars. Um, and for example, ammunition, what I was told, Kalashnikov bullets, it's between 20 to 70 cent per piece um, or uh, an RPG around depending on the type and uh, also the circumstances how easy it can be found and so on is between like 13 to 47 US dollars so um, it's all very affordable and uh, this is also something that people often don't realize because of these prices and also other things the insurgency doesn't need as much money as one would assume because, um, yeah, okay, sometimes they have to buy that stuff, uh, but it's comparatively cheap. Again, as I said before, some of the ammunition and the weapons, considerable parts certainly also come out of uh, battlefield capture, which is for free. Um, so you don't need that much money as if you have like, one hundred thousand dollars or so, you get quite a, a long way in Afghanistan. Um, if if you want to set up your your own little insurgency, right? And the Taliban have got money coming out of their ears, basically. No, it's hard to say. I personally am always. I don't know how it is. I'll, I'll try to follow it up, um, but very often it is. Uh, for for example, let's say. Um, all these reports, also from like U.S. Department of Defense and uh, U.N. agencies about how many millions or billions of dollars the Taliban make out of opium. Um, there are like uh, experts that have followed opium cultivation and taxations since like decades. And they say that the numbers don't add up. So uh, they make money but usually not not nearly as much as uh, figures are like thrown around, which is also not necessary because again, sometimes the problem is for for a Western from a Western perspective, you always have the feeling you need money to run this insurgency. You need money to pay salaries. You need money to 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 buy stuff and so on. But fact is, a lot of the things that the 
Taliban just either they have it already or they take it. Um, for example, a Talib once told me when they stay somewhere, they stay in local houses and then it's kind of Afghan hospitality code. So uh, they come into a village and they demand to be hosted by someone and like fed by someone. And if you just take what you need, what do you need money for? I mean, uh, if, if you demand food or transport or whatever, the amount of money that you need is, is way lower than a Westerner would assume uh, because you think you have to pay for everything. Um, but how much this is, is really like hard to tell. Uh, I just find it telling that usually all these figures that get thrown around are estimates and they hardly, if ever, uh, have like factual basis. It's not like that someone, um, it's just like interpolated. They, they begin to calculate, but it's not that on the ground that you see that much money floating around. They have, but how much? I don't know. It is less than most people assume, I would say. Yeah, I think this is always the problem with US state figures. You get analysts and think tanker types that inform them, people that have never, ever set foot on the ground. And if they have, it's usually in the wrong places. And then obviously America is like, well, that, that suits us. Now we can accuse them of this and whatever, whatever. So I think that's uh, 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 always the way with like US State Department figures, man. Um is, is there anything else you want to say before we go? I think this has been really good, but if there's anything else you want to say. Um, as, as I said, the thing is just, uh, but with everything in Afghanistan, and especially with the arms dealing, it is just when you talk with people, everyone says it's like this, like that, and so on. And then when you go to the ground and try to find something, then you realize that like half of all these stories that are like common truth or something, and everyone says it is like that, they don't pan out. Uh, sometimes they pan out, but usually even if they pan out, it's kind of different than you would think. And uh, yeah, um, this is with, with everything in Afghanistan. If you are not on the ground and if you haven't seen it, you can't believe it because it might, it is like more than likely wrong. Um, but that's just the way it is in this country. Yeah, man. I think that's why work that you do on the ground is so important. You know, I think we need to do, we people need to put more uh, and realize how important the on the ground reporting still is. Um, friends, if people want to get hold of you, where can they? Are you on Twitter and all of that? I'm on Twitter at Franz J. Marty. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I mean, everyone can gladly uh, get in touch with me. Unfortunately, given that people don't really pay anymore for on-the-ground reporting, I will soon start working for an NGO um, in Afghanistan, and uh, then it will be a full-time job, and uh, at least for the next year, probably, um, I won't be able to, to report anymore. Um, but if someone wants to reach out, always glad. It's just uh, I will be more limited in what I can do because I'm not uh free as a freelancer anymore yeah man i, I feel you it's the, it's a big problem in our industry um well thanks very much for talking to us mate that was really really interesting thanks for your time okay thank you very much that was franz marty telling us about his search for afghan black market arms dealers and later this week, there will be a more in-depth article written by friends up on the Popular Front website. So go to popularfront.co, should be up by Wednesday. Um, this episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com, defense with an S. Check them out for your daily dose of 
global conflict reportage and analysis and all that is good. If you want to help us keep moving and you want premium episodes, access to the Discord where you will learn fuckloads, I learn stuff on there all the time, go to patreon.com slash popular front. We've got all new merchandise in the shop. All um, clothes have been, you know, reloaded, restocked, whatever you want to call it. Um, even new sizes added. There were like double XL for t-shirts now as well. There'll be a hoodie. Should be up by the time this airs. Um, so yeah, go to popularfront.bigcartel.com if you want the merchandise. Uh, it looks cool as fuck, and it helps us grow and helps me basically fund this whole thing. Because, you know, like I said, we are not doing this whole corporate funding thing. So this is how we do it. Popularfront.bigcartel.com. Have a look there. If you want to get in touch, uh, follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is how you spell my surname. Or you can follow the Twitter, the Popular Front Twitter. That's twitter.com slash popularfrontco. On Instagram, it's at popular.front. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, and the YouTube, which we're constantly getting hammered by because YouTube is full of shit. Uh, that is youtube.com slash popularfront. All our documentaries are there. Unfortunately, you know, it's a terrible, terrible company, but it is a good platform for putting your docs up there. Even though we have been censored and that, but you know, whatever, it's still all up. So yeah, go there. Um, there'll be a new doc soon. Um, about ITS, the militant eco-terrorist slash nihilist organization. Um, I managed to speak with one of their leaders, so that should be up soon. Thank you very much to the following people on the Patreon. They are Adam Berg Snyder, Andrew Fife, Axel Iverson, Brian McLaughlin, Callum Ross, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorbanek, Elizabeth Benicki, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Noah, Ari, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did podcast, Q-Ball, Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Uh, you lot really do help to keep this moving. Also, I want to say a very big thank you to Anthony Kabarik, friend of Popular Front. He's been doing a thing where basically he buys and sells um surplus military gear and collectible uh, ammunition magazines stuff like that all really cool and what he's been doing is auctioning some of it off as like a fundraiser for popular front so we can go off and make other documentaries do more work so really appreciate that anthony thanks very much uh if you want to see these um fundraisers he's doing the best place if you go to instagram.com slash the underscore angry underscore ukrainian one you'll find him the underscore angry underscore ukrainian one that's anthony kabarik um and he's really been helping us out so thanks very much mate music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by son of old find him on soundcloud soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old 
and message him and tell him and say, Jake said, hurry up and make more synthwave tunes, fucker. Thank you.